Well, again, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. I want to thank you each for taking the time uh, and making the effort to be here with us this morning as we gather together to seek and engage with the living God. Will you please join me as I pray? Dear God, I ask that you would just simply make us aware of your presence. God, help us to to make a little space to receive you. That as we are here together, there is a unique way you speak to us as we gather together. And I pray we would make space for that. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and stir our hearts. Open our imaginations that we would hear from you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in week three of our Advent series entitled, The Voices of Advent, where we've been attending to the season of Advent, the season of waiting, a season of expectation, a season of wonder. And even though you've heard us say a couple of times that we love this season, I will say that I don't think many of us like to wait. We live in a culture and a time in our world where waiting is not really an option. We get anxious or mad when we send a text message to somebody and we don't hear back immediately. And so then we call and then we leave a message and then we email and then we send homing pigeons and then we whatever else we have at our disposal. We wonder why when I have instant access to someone have I not heard back. And it's no surprise to me that in a season that is meant to be a season of waiting we find ourselves feeling the most busy because we hate waiting. We want to fill the space, fill it up, pack it in because bored and anxious dogs create things to do, right? Thank you, a couple of you. Yeah. Um, But we don't know how to wait. We don't know how to sit with nothing to do. We don't know how to let expectation build. So we decorate and we cook We gather with friends and family, we wrap presents, we receive presents, and so on and so on. And none of those things are necessarily bad or wrong, but I'm noting that maybe we're giving our attention to the wrong things. Maybe the reasons why we are doing these things need some reshaping. And in a season that was meant to be a season of waiting, a season of expectation, we have again become so busy. In this Advent, we've been focusing on the voices of Advent, these key words and phrases from the Bible that point us to the arrival of Jesus Christ, his Advent in this world, the very thing that humanity is waiting for. And we started with the phrase, keep watch, and we learned from the shepherds to look out for one another. We also learned to look out for where God is moving in our world and go participate with him. And last week, Brian did an outstanding job teaching us about what it means to prepare the way of the Lord. To be about God's work of making things right in our own corners of the world, all the way from our cities and our neighborhoods down to our homes and in our own interior person. And this week, we're going to focus on the voice inviting us to magnify. And I want you to know, just from the start, that I believe this is probably one of the most dangerous voices we will listen to. It's absolutely not safe. It's one of the most challenging And the invitation of this voice, should any of us be courageous enough to respond to it, is one that looks to start and continue a revolution within each one of us. 
We're going to be looking at Luke 1, 46 through 55. And if you have your Bible, you can follow along there, or the verses will be behind me on the screen. I also want to let you know that inside your bulletin, if you got one, there's a blank page, a space for you to take notes, draw pictures, do whatever you do to help you stay engaged. Before we look at the passage, I want to give a quick backstory because there's three characters we need to know about. First is two, this couple, this young couple named Mary and Joseph, set to be married. During that time, uh, Mary has this angel show up and tell her that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And that the Holy Spirit's going to make this happen. That she somehow is going to become the mother of the Son of God. And so after hearing that, she goes and visits her older relative, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. And her unborn child is John the Baptist, who Brian talked about last week. So the story goes that when Mary greets her relative Elizabeth, the unborn John the Baptist leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth's response to this goes like this. She said, blessed are you, speaking to Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And here's our passage from today, Mary's response. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The opening line of Mary's response to Elizabeth's question is, My soul magnifies the Lord. So let's start there. This word magnify means... To make something appear larger than it is, especially with a lens or a microscope. Some synonyms are enlarge, boost, maximize, increase. The Greek word here is this word that, uh, or it's magnify, and some translators have translated as glorify. It's megaluno, um, and it means exactly what they've translated it to mean. Isn't that nice? Right? Nice when we flash one of these up here that you're like, oh, that's exactly what they said. Fantastic. But it's also like one of those definitions when you look it up and it says, you look up the word and the definition says, to be whatever that word you're looking up was. And that doesn't feel helpful because that's why you were looking up to find out what that phrase meant. But it didn't help. So we see this and it's like, great, it says magnify or glorify. That's exactly what we thought. But what does it mean to magnify something? Because the definition doesn't really fit when we're thinking about God. Because when we magnify something, what we're doing is we're trying to make it appear bigger than it is. Or making part of it appear bigger than it is. We would say that with God, how do we do that? How do you do that with someone who is bigger than definition? Bigger than we can understand, or even bigger than the word bigger can describe or contain, bigger than any of the things we use to measure bigness, how can we even handle this? How can we make it appear bigger? It's because I think there might be something more to magnification than our definition allows. Because when we want to magnify something, we want to take a better look at it. 
Our senses, as they are, cannot perceive whatever it is or whomever it is we wish to get a better look at. And so we use some kind of implement, like a lens or a telescope or a microscope, to make the object appear bigger. But the object itself doesn't actually change size. So it's really our perception that changes when we magnify something. Whether it is the sun or some microscopic critter of some kind, the reality that that creature or that thing is the size it is remains the same. The issue is our inability to see it clearly. And so we focus on it. We get closer. We use a lens or something that enhances what we can see. And what happens when we do see something or someone more clearly is that we're changed by our discoveries. We may become more resolute as we discover that what we had thought was exactly true, and so we grip tighter and we feel stronger in what we believe. We may discover that we were completely incorrect, and we may need to change some things. But regardless of which of those or wherever in between we land, we will most likely not remain the same. So in order for us to magnify something, for us to take a better look at something, we have to create space for that change that will occur in us when we do. We have to know that whenever we go through this process of making something appear bigger so we can get a better look at it, we will not stay the same. And this is the part of Magnify that I want to spend some time on. This is where it gets dangerous. This is what Mary went through and how she can be an inspiration and a leader to us. If you've known me over the past five years or so, I've become quite fascinated with Mary She's a very controversial character in the life of the church. Some people pray to Mary. Some people say it's really bad to pray to Mary. Some say you can't do it whether it's bad or not. It doesn't matter. There's all kinds of creative ways people have looked at Mary. Some say that Mary is the New Testament version of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark, the place where they put the Ten Commandments, those stone tablets where God's law had been written and the the priests would carry it around? They say that Mary carried the fulfillment of the law in her body. And so she's the New Testament Ark of the Covenant. And there are all kinds of things that people say about Mary. I want to take a minute and um, show a video uh, that a friend of Rich's named Carlo made called Questions, uh, Questions for Mary. Um, I showed it several years ago, so if you've seen it already, just enjoy it again. Uh, and then we'll come back to uh, some of these uh, things to do with Mary. word what made him laugh the hardest was he a run-of-the-mill little guy or was his hair sprinkled with stardust did he work miracles around the house was he built like an ox was he kind of quiet or the constant chatterbox when did his daddy die was he teased about the story of his birth did he ever have a crush what tempted him the worst? Did it surprise you when he started working in the slums? Or was it you who taught him it's where the kingdom comes?
endured the one life giving execution of the world. The promise is shattered, left desolate and utterly unfulfilled. To see the boy you had bathed and held and nursed, spat upon and whipped and scorched and crushed and cursed. Were you incredulous when you heard the news he was alive? Did you hold your breath until he finally did arrive? Or did you burst into that same song you'd sung when you first heard it? still my soul magnifies the Lord. He has seen the humble estate of his servant, and now all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Mary is the only person that we encounter in Scripture that is present before Jesus is born, when he's conceived, through his time in utero, at his birth, through his entire life, including sometimes in his ministry where she thought he was insane. Um, 
through the events of his arrest, his torture, and death, present three days later for the resurrection, and present all the way through Pentecost in the book of Acts. The only other person that even comes close in Scripture is Herod Antipas. And not really, because we know the events of his birth through some uh, historical accounts outside the Bible. We know that he was probably about 20 when Jesus was born, and he was alive through his death and resurrection. And so some people even see Harry, uh, Herod and Mary as opposites, one who made decisions that led to Jesus' death and Mary who carried and made decisions that led to Jesus coming into life. But regardless of that comparison, I do think it is worth listening to the words and actions of someone who spent so much time with Jesus. The other thing that I find fascinating about Mary is that she is young and she gets it. One of the things the Bible does really well is to not discount the voices of people who may be thought of as less. We may think of youth as untested and wild, a little bit out of control. Many of us see youth as unable to make good decisions. There are all kinds of studies about the teenage brain right now. Um, And we see our kids do things that tell us there are certain fundamental truths about things like gravity, the surface temperature of certain objects, uh, things like this that would seem to tell us they don't have wisdom. But the Bible talks in several places about youth and says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. And in this case, God gives the burden and the blessing of carrying the Messiah into the world through her body to a 13-year-old girl. And not just the burden of carrying the Son of God, but the responsibility of raising and living with this child. Now, one of the things uh, that until recently has gone uncommented on in the comic book world has to do with Superman's earthly parents. Um, And if you know me, I'll try to work Superman into any sermon I can. But, um, as you know, Superman is an alien from a planet called Krypton. He gets sent to Earth where he has these powers that make him uh, vastly superior to us humans. Now, in the comics, and here's a picture of Jonathan and Martha Kent um, from the Man of Steel movie. Um, in, in the comics, they've, they've changed the way his origin works. So sometimes they say, well, he developed his powers along the way and didn't really get them until later on in life because they're trying to deal with the problem of what do you do with a two-year-old temper tantrum who has superpowers and can throw cars and things like that. Um, and, and how do you do that? And how do you come up with people who could be so good that they could raise a child like that who doesn't destroy the planet in the midst of one of their rants? What is it about Jonathan and Martha Kent that made them so able to raise this superpowered alien to become the hero Superman? And what was Mary's role in raising Jesus? We don't really know a ton. We can say the responsibility was given to her and that she honored that because we see her in the Bible, in the Bible's version of Home Alone, uh, as Jesus' family and a bunch of friends head to um, the Passover festival and they leave and Jesus gets left. Uh, And then they come back because they realize he's missing. Um, And also, in in very typical fashion, uh, we see that parents and kids don't understand each other very well because they ask, they kind of say, well, where have you been? He's like, where do you think I've been? Right? Like, you should know this. And it says they didn't understand him. And so it became clear that neither parent nor child understood each other, which should help us feel comfortable that we're all doing fine. Um, (laughs) But they get that together and they go home. So there's, there's a sense of responsibility there. And so God hands the burden of bearing, birthing, and raising the Messiah over to Mary, a 13-year-old girl. And Mary gets it. 
And I know I can't make a direct comparison to teenagers in our culture, but we won't let a person drive until they're 16. We won't let a person vote until they're 18. And we won't let someone legally interact with alcohol until you're 21. But God saw it fit to give over the entering of his Messiah into the world into someone that we might think twice about. And she gets it. And it's frustrating to me because I think a lot of us older, wiser, more tech-savvy, and obviously further advanced critters, we don't get it, right? Mary had her moments, but overall, and certainly in this phase of her life, she gets it. And I keep saying when she gets it, what do I mean by that? Is that she magnified God. She made space in her life to both see who God is in a deeper way and have a posture of being transformed by that and have her life direction radically changed by whatever she would discover in that process. In John 15, 5, Jesus says that without him we can do nothing. Yet at this time of year, I tend to think that we feel like Christmas can't happen without us. It's our actions that keep Christmas going. If I don't get the cards out, if I miss this event, if I don't cook that meal, and what I mean by that is if I don't cook it better than I did last year or better than the other people around me, if I don't find that perfect gift, somehow Christmas isn't going to happen, or at least not going to happen the way I want it to. That, along with a lot of drama that gets stirred up by us and some of the people around us, time with our families that often has good and bad attached to it, we see people's happiness and fulfillment, including our own, is up to us, dependent on us, and we often crowd Jesus out of the scene. And I wonder if we're magnifying the wrong thing. And is it possible that this leading us, this way this happens is leading us to do even the things that we so enjoy that are good in a way that needs to be retooled. Loretta Ross Gada says this, God asks us to give away everything of ourselves. The gift of greatest efficacy and power that we can offer God and creation is not our skills, gifts, abilities, and possessions. The wise men had their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Paul and Peter had their preaching. Mary offered only space, love, and belief. What is it that delivers Christ into the world? Preaching, art, writing, scholarship, social justice. These are all gifts well worth sharing. But preachers lose their charisma. Scholarship grows pedantic. Social justice cannot save us alone. In the end, when all other human gifts have met their inevitable limitation, it is the recollected one, the bold virgin with a heart in love with God who makes a sanctuary of her life, who delivers Christ, who then delivers us. In short, Mary made space for God, made space for Jesus, made space for the Holy Spirit. It is no coincidence that Mary stands in the face of others really local to her spot in Scripture and throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament who did not make room for God. Right away, we have the innkeeper who says there is no room. We have Herod, who is this leader, this king, his ruler, who's sending people to go investigate what's going to happen with Jesus because he's scared that this is going to be a ruler more powerful than he is. And so he wants to come in and he's going to execute people to make a statement that Jesus doesn't belong. And yet here we have Mary, magnifying God, making room for new life. And the amazing thing is when Mary made space for Jesus... She was changed. Now Mary is a lens for Elizabeth and for us. 
that we can see a magnified Jesus. And this is one of the fabulous things about this, that when we magnify Jesus, when we create space in our own lives for Jesus, then changes are going to happen as we encounter him and we're transformed. And as we're transformed, we continue to magnify Jesus and pretty soon other people can see that. And now we're becoming the very people that God is using to give others a chance to see Jesus. We become a magnifying glass in some sense. But I think this time of year is difficult for us. Again, I think we've magnified the wrong things. Some of those things aren't necessarily bad things. But we've pursued them for reasons that aren't helping us. And so instead of magnifying Jesus and being transformed in a way that makes us a lens for others, we're stuck in a cycle of wanting. We want more and more and more. And then we're tired and we want rest. It's all still wanting. And I fear that we've become spoiled. We've spent years getting what we want, but still wanting more. Getting angry when we don't get what we want. And all of this is filling up and filling up and pushing Jesus aside. And it gets us into this desperate place of this kind of consumeristic feel where we want and want and want. And yet we don't have room for any more, let alone for Jesus. But we also can't let go of the things we have and the things we want. And we give other things power over our lives and our very person. And we end up giving lip service to Jesus, meaning we speak well of him. We say the right things and we know some of the right things. It is not uncommon for me to hear and for me to hear myself say something like this in the middle of a rant. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm certainly thankful for the things God has given me or for the things I have or for this. But what I'm really doing is I'm kind of checking a box. So I think this passes for thankfulness. I've kind of done my due. I'm just going to say I'm thankful. I've kind of covered my bases. What we see in Mary is someone who's willing to make space for God and in doing so was willing to be changed because what we end up doing is we learn some things about him. We see him closer up, but we keep him distant. We see someone like Mary and we think, no, I don't really want my life to be changed like that. And so we hold Jesus at a distance. We see him in a way that fits how we think Jesus should be or a way that helps Jesus line up with my beliefs. And so I shape Jesus and minimize him and magnify myself. And so we say like so many others, there is no room for you here, Jesus. Because in order to magnify, we have to make space for change. We have to be prepared to see something new. We have to keep watching to see with soft eyes what is presented to us. But how do we do that? When you make space for something or someone in your life, you usually have to let go of something else or you have to rearrange things to make space. And we do this all the time, right? I'm headed to work. I need some coffee. I'm going to make space, right? I'm going to pull over. I'm going to go to my favorite coffee place. I'm going to get some coffee, right? We have an event we need to go to. We prepare ahead of time. We, we make space all the time, and yet it's the most difficult thing. Some of us commute to work, and I know lots of people who repurpose that time and either have some podcasts or sermons to listen to or some music that's helpful, or they listen to the news in a new way where they're listening to it and they're praying as they're hearing it. And some of us, we turn all of it off and so we can sit in silence even as we're commuting and provide some different kind of space. Sometimes when I'm doing a project at home, I put on some music. Brian has put together this really cool Spotify list that's really easy to get. You go to Spotify, set up a free account, and then you can listen to all the songs that we play in our, uh, our worship times gathered here on Sundays. You can have those just going. I found that I do that. My kids sing those songs all the time now. 
There are all kinds of prayer apps you can get. I have one designed by a friend of mine called Ceaseless. It takes my contacts list and it puts them into a prayer list. I open it up and it's, I've got it set to pray for three people. So I pray for one, swipe, pray for the next, swipe, pray for the next. And it says, good job. You prayed for three people. <laughs> and I've got it set, an alarm to go off at a certain time. But I still have to make space to do it. I could download a thousand prayer apps and still not pray. Could be reading scripture. I know people who, when their computers come on, scripture verse pops up. And some of us think that is cheesy. But if I sat with a scripture verse for a couple minutes, every time my computer came on, I might change that time significantly. It could be the very things that we already do. It could be coming to church, joining a core group, serving on a ministry team. It could be the very holiday things you do. You're going to plan that party? Awesome. Plan it with the only thought in mind of serving people, being hospitable, being a blessing. And see where Jesus sits in the midst of that. You're going to buy that gift? Fantastic. Buy it with the idea of being generous. Buy it with the idea of being a blessing to someone and see where Jesus is at in the middle of that. Because what I find, and we've also got all these Advent resources you can get out there. Because what I find, though, is that there's no lack of resources to help magnify Jesus, but there's a lack of openness and courage on our part to follow that up. There's a quote by Frederick Buechner that I put up a couple weeks ago that I wanted to use again because it's haunted me every day since I read it. It says, Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. It's dangerous to magnify Jesus. It's dangerous to be moved by the Holy Spirit because it could change everything. Having this in mind, I want to look quickly again at Elizabeth's question and Mary's response. Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There's an affirmation and a question. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb because Mary is now the magnifying lens of Jesus for Elizabeth. Elizabeth sees something new, has new hope, questions with new possibilities. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It is possible that this could happen. And Mary's answer to the question is this. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And this is what I see because I magnify the Lord. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He is mighty and has done great things for me. And holy is his name. He is merciful. He is strong. He scatters the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. And he's helped Israel. Mary is different. She's let go of the life that she was heading for, whatever that may have been. And some things were still the same. She's still a carpenter's wife. Maybe having a family was part of her plan. But I pretty much guarantee you that she did not get up the morning that that angel visited her and said, I think today I'm going to become the mother of the Messiah. I'm going to write that on my to-do list, and I'll check it off when it's done. Right? I don't think she could have imagined that. And yet she was open to a huge trajectory change. What would it look like? For each of us to make space for Jesus. 
To stand with Mary in the face of others who say, there's no room for you here. You don't belong. Are we willing to make space for Jesus? The thing I want to end with is this. For most of us in this time of year, making space invites us to let go of something. The thing that I think we need to let go of the most is...